you've been a company man for years now. You've been ruthless, you've been efficient, you've listened to orders, and you've been brilliant in your military tactics. You are the governor of the ABC Islands, Aruba, Bonaire, and Carousel. You've been called upon now by the Dutch West India Company, your employer, to retake the island of St. Martin. The Spanish once had it, then the Dutch took it over, and the Spanish took it back. Well, you, Peter Stuyvesant, you are in charge of retaking the island. With your armada of 12 ships and over a thousand men, you invade the island. But despite the overwhelming force, the Spanish on the island do not surrender. They hold up, they collect, they hide. Meanwhile, your fleet is dealing with the constant pressures put upon it by Spanish ships. Encounter after encounter pile upon you. You could feel the loss building up inside of you. You know you're going to lose. Simple Spanish stubbornness and the constant wearing away of your navy is going to cause you to retreat back to the ABC Islands. Because if you don't, perhaps the Spanish will invade them. You're a brave man and your ship takes fire. In the midst of all the action, the Spanish release an unrelenting array of cannonballs towards your ship. Perhaps knowing that you yourself are on board, the leader of this entire military endeavor. One cannonball smashes into your leg and you black out. But you're Peter Stuyvesant. And this wouldn't be the end of your assault. Another month would go by before you finally withdraw. Now you're a tough man, but having a mangled, festering leg in the middle of the hot Caribbean is not the best or smartest way to heal yourself. And so you reluctantly agree to leave and go back to the Netherlands. There they cut off your leg right below your knee. You've worked for the Dutch West India Company for years now. You worked in Brazil, you built yourself up, you became the governor of the ABC Islands. But now, on account of your failed invasion of a Spanish possession and your amputation, the company is offering you an early retirement. Now the company sees you as beaten down, worn down, worthless. But you, Peter Stuyvesant, you feel like you should have died from this type of an attack, this type of an injury. You should have died after all you've been through. And the fact that you didn't die is a sign from God that you were destined for greatness. Welcome back to the Other States of America History Podcast. I am Eric Yanis. In previous episodes, we've seen this character, Peter Stuyvesant, show up. And he's been an antagonist. Well, that was in our New Sweden story. Now we're switching back to New Netherland, and he's going to be the protagonist. But he's not a modern man by any stretch of the imagination. And don't try to make him out to be a modern hero, because he doesn't fit the mold. First, how do we say Stuyvesant? New Yorkers will say Peter Stuyvesant. That's what I grew up with. However, I heard Charles Gehring, who is the, the know-all and end-all of the New Netherland Institute, and he pronounces it, probably in perfect 17th century Dutch, as something close to Stuyvesant, or Stuyvesant, something like that. So the last time I saw him speak was probably a year and a half ago. That's the best pronunciation I have for it. But for all intents and purposes, we're going to say Stuyvesant, because that's what I'm comfortable with, and I'm the one doing the talking here. Peter Stuyvesant was the son of a Calvinist preacher, and for the rest of his life, he would be a staunch supporter of the Dutch Reformed Church, to the exclusion of every other religious organization or religious belief, no matter how close it was to Dutch Reform. Before becoming a military man, a company man, Stuyvesant went to university, and he got into some trouble there when he was found to be sleeping with the daughter of his landlord. Much like Johan Prince, who we heard about in our last episode on New Sweden, you have a guy who has heaven in mind, but then Earth gets in the way a little bit. So instead of going the way of becoming a priest, you end up becoming a mercenary of sorts. 
Stuyvesant proves himself beyond competent, and while working for the Dutch West India Company, he quickly rises up through the ranks and becomes a governor. Which brings us to the failed invasion of St. Martin at the beginning of this podcast just a couple minutes ago. After the fallout of that event, the amputation, and returning to the Netherlands, the Dutch West India Company, after some convincing, decided to make him the new Director General of New Netherland, replacing the incompetent Willem Kieft. Now, the records show that he not only became the Director General of New Netherland, but he also controlled these Dutch possessions in the Caribbean that we talked about before. This is a very understudied portion of Peter Stuyvesant's life, I feel. And if you're a young history major out there, one area that you could explore is Peter Stuyvesant's directorship of these ABC islands, which, especially after he took control of New Netherland, seems underdocumented. So Peter Stuyvesant will be governing over far more than any previous New Netherland governor. And for other reasons we're going to get to in a minute, he's going to have to deal with way more problems inside and out than any governor before. But lucky for the colony of New Netherland, Peter Stuyvesant is also the most capable man the colony has ever seen. Now, I might have said that before with Peter Minuet, but I really mean it this time for Peter Stuyvesant. Although the Dutch West India Company gave him this huge role of governing these very different areas very far away from one another, they also put under him more people in power. So there was supposed to be a vice director and a fiscal, which would have an expanded role. These two men would have more power than the people in those positions in the past under Stuyvesant. So there'd be more of a council and the director general wouldn't be such a dictator in terms of the power he could wield. But as soon as they left the Netherlands, Stuyvesant made it very clear that these two men would have very little influence over Stuyvesant, and Stuyvesant was going to return the order to how it was before. Before going to New Netherland, they stopped in the Caribbean, to the Dutch possessions, where Stuyvesant decided to hold a meeting. Now, the fiscal, he wanted to go to that meeting, and he showed up at the meeting, and Stuyvesant said to him, Get out! Who admitted you to the council? When I want you, I will call for you. And then he imprisoned him on a ship. He didn't let him go ashore. The entire time they were in the Caribbean, he was a non-entity, had no power whatsoever. And under Stuyvesant's rule, people should get used to that. When he arrived in New Netherland, people must have been surprised to see that he had a peg leg. And it's not offensive to call it a peg leg. It was a legitimate wooden peg for this time. It's not a proper prosthetic leg that we would have today. It was a peg leg. But his peg leg, based on various descriptions, either had silver bands wrapped around it or silver nails in it or both. So by doing that, silver is expensive and it's not exactly the strongest material in the world. By having silver wrapped around your peg leg, you're saying, I'm proud of this. This is an accomplishment for me. I lost this in service to the company and I'm still here and kicking. So look at my leg. To our modern imagination, he probably looked a bit like a pirate. But he gets onto the shores of New Amsterdam, and he says to the gathering crowd, I shall reign over you as a father governs his children. Now this sounds a bit pompous, but remember when Willem Kieft, the last director, showed up in New Netherland, he basically said, listen, I'm the Prince of Orange of New Netherland. I am the man in charge. I am the nobility here. So look out. Stuyvesant takes a much more familial route, basically saying, I'm going to be in charge of you folks, but consider me a father. So, it is better. One thing he discovers is that Willem Kieft is basically being imprisoned for his terrible job as director of New Netherland. And so he, uh, he immediately goes to send Kieft back 
to be judged over by the Dutch West India Company. But he also sends back two guys who complained about Willem Kieft. He's establishing right away, I'm going to be the governor here. I'm going to be the director. And if you are in the habit of criticizing a director, well, that's damn near going to be considered treason. So he sends those two guys back with Kieft. And as we covered in the last episode, there was a shipwreck. And Kief was never seen again. Much to Stuyvesant's annoyance, those two other guys did live. They went back to the Netherlands. They were absolved of any sort of crime that Stuyvesant put against them and sent back to New Netherland. So Stuyvesant still has a little bit of that for a domestic headache. When he arrives, all of New Netherland probably is populated by only a thousand people. Remember, five, six years before this, there were 3,000 people. But Willem Kieft and the, the completely unnecessary wars he caused reduced the population by two-thirds. The entire colony is 1,000 people. Meanwhile, next door, all of the New England colonies combined have about 60,000 people. So if it, ca- if it came to war with the English, the Dutch are outnumbered 60 to 1. Not even close. You wouldn't win that one. Furthermore, Fort Amsterdam is in ruins. Remember Kieft collecting this corn tax and all these other things he did to justify being ruthless? He said, well, I need to rebuild the fort. I need to rebuild the colony. We're we're defenseless. Well, it turns out he did all that stuff. And at the end of Kieft's rule, New Amsterdam is still in ruins and the fort is still in ruins. So Kieft fixed nothing. And he didn't collect any of the debts that the company was owed to the company from uh, private individuals. Because he was a coward and he didn't want to deal with the, the personal conflict. There was no city planning. So streets were crooked in New Amsterdam. But also elsewhere, people just spread out. The 1,000 people who were left, there was no sense of order, uh, criminal justice. There was no... Um, people were buying plots of land from Native Americans that overlapped other plots of land. So the Dutch had a lot of fighting within themselves because they had these competing land claims. Awful. The whole colony is in ruins. So he very quickly goes about consolidating cities, consolidating settlements into little bits of civilization, instituting tax codes, formal laws, putting people in charge of criminal justice. Stuyvesant also discovers that Willem Kieft was pretty much seduced by the 400-pound Johan Prince, governor of New Sweden, who should be his enemy, considering New Sweden is wholly made out of a bite taken out of New Netherland. It's an illegal colony as far as the Dutch are concerned and the English, and they shouldn't like one another. But Kieft was was taken somehow by Johann Prince, perhaps his words, perhaps the fact that he was a member of nobility, and they became friends, or at least Kieft considered them friends. Meanwhile, Johann Prince, with his colony of less than 300 people, was able to keep this thing going because he pretty much sweet-talked the Dutch governor into thinking they had this friendship, which they probably really didn't, if you ask Johan himself. So Stuyvesant immediately established with Johan Prince, we're not friends here, all right? We're not friends, you don't belong on the Delaware, and I'm going to do whatever I can to get you out of there. And we covered this in the last episode in New Sweden, if you want to go back and listen. It's in far more detail. But he deconstructs some forts, build new forts, tries to command both sides of the river. He buys up land from the Native Americans. He personally goes down there and convinces Swedish farmers to switch their allegiance over to the Dutch. He's sending a clear message to Johan Prince that the party is over. We aren't friends, and you got to get out of here. 
Because this colony is not long for life. Writers in New Netherland in the past have noted the terrible choices the company made in choosing directors in the past. Guys like DeVries said, Commanders are sent here whether they be fit or not. And then I believe Adrian Vanderdonk said very similar statements of how the company doesn't care that New Netherland exists, doesn't care who's in charge of it, doesn't care what they do while they're there. But we can see, and I'm sure the guys back then could see also, that things were changing very quickly, and this Stuyvesant guy was a different character. Other important reforms that Stuyvesant established, he made a ferry service. So this is important at the time. If you remember, Manhattan used to be a legitimate island, so a ferry service is quite useful. He also broke up an English settlement on Oyster Bay on Long Island. And this is an issue he's going to continuously come across. And his uh, predecessors also, the English slowly encroaching. He's actually pushing back on the English. So that's a good thing for the colony. He also made sure that bars didn't expand in popularity. Something like a quarter of all buildings on the island of Manhattan were bars or, or were allowed to sell alcohol at one point. So he stopped that from continuing to increase in popularity. He instituted a proper Sabbath for everyone to observe. He prohibited gambling at certain times, certain types of drink. He also did his best to normalize relationships with the Native Americans. Remember, right before this was a bloody war where two-thirds of the population of the colony disappeared, went home or were killed or scattered or taken captive by Native Americans, and an untold numbers of Native Americans were either displaced migrated away, or themselves killed. He did what he could to normalize those relations, including making sure that Europeans who were ripping off Native Americans were properly punished and the Native Americans compensated for the crimes that Europeans were committing against them. He also, of course, became a church elder and was a huge supporter of the Dutch Reformed Church. But for reasons we're about to see, Stuyvesant wasn't a good person or a good guy. He was competent. He did his job well. He might have been brilliant, but he wasn't considered a nice person. So here's a quote from the historian Oliver Rink on Stuyvesant. He was more feared than loved, respected than revered, but he was without a doubt the most capable man the company had ever sent to New Netherland. Now that's being nice. We're going to jump in and see some things that people at the time said about him. Adrian Vanderdonk, who Russell Shorto writes about extensively in his wonderful book, Island at the Center of the World, which is about New Netherland in general and New Amsterdam in particular. Adrian Vanderdonk, living under Stuyvesant's rule, says that the governor speaks with ugly words, which would be better suited for a fish market than a council chamber. Vanderdonk will not be a friend or ally of Stuyvesant, and Vanderdonk wants a more democratically led government. The same man also says of Stuyvesant, The director is everything, and he does the business of the whole country, having several ships himself, that he is a brewer and has breweries, and he is part owner of ships, a merchant and a trader, in lawful as well as contraband articles. So to rephrase the end of that quote, Stuyvesant has been caught by people living in New Netherland, selling goods that would otherwise be illegal if it were not for the sake that he was the one selling it the man in charge of the colony. This includes guns to the natives, which become legal and illegal at certain times, but all throughout, Stuyvesant is able to supply guns to whomever he cares to. Also, goods that were illegal in the colony would somehow end up in Stuyvesant's possession for him to sell. So he was confiscating a great number of cargo off of ships, and then somehow a lot of that ended up in his personal possession for sale, uh, despite the laws. 
And this would actually hinder trade from other places, especially English ships. Because he would confiscate things off of English ships that were there illegally or trading things that shouldn't have been traded legally. And they would become his stuff. And writers like Vanderdonk note that he does this pretty much openly, these illegal activities. Meanwhile, he banishes people from the colony on pain of death for doing the same things he's doing. And he did so with two traders in 1648. This leads to a flood of letters being sent back to the Amsterdam chamber of the Dutch West India Company, saying this guy Stuyvesant is a thief. He doesn't follow his own rules. He's cruel. He uses bad language. He's, he has, he's selling contraband. He's selling guns to the natives. Get rid of this guy. Letters also from the Dutch wanting a more democratic government thrown in with everything else. Stuyvesant arrests different people who he finds out have been writing these letters. Adrian van der Donk himself is arrested by Stuyvesant and imprisoned. He also imprisons Van Rensselaer's man, representative for the patroonship in what is now upstate New York. He keeps that guy under lock and key because their letters are making it back to the Netherlands and it's not good news for Stuyvesant. So now let's throw it back to the company side of this story. They're receiving these letters and the general world events, 1648 to about 1652, are not going well for the Dutch West India Company. They're going to lose a lot of possessions, including Dutch Brazil, which was probably their most profitable center of commerce. Suddenly, the Dutch West India Company, which has always ignored New Netherland and just recently started to put part of an eye on, is now very concerned with their possession of New Netherland. It's one of the things they have left. And they are receiving the flood of letters detailing how bad of a governor Peter Stuyvesant is. And wouldn't you know it, unlike all those other letters in the previous decades that were mostly ignored because nobody cared about New Netherland, Peter Stuyvesant is recalled back to the Netherlands. The letter-writing campaign worked. He is to be sent back, in shame, conceivably, and a new government was supposed to take over New Netherland, made up of elected burghers. Now you'll hear this term burghers, or bourgeois, Burgesses, they're all related to one another throughout history. A burger is going to be, and I think I've mentioned this on the episode on who were the Dutch. A burger is a well-to-do citizen of a town or a settlement who is not a member of nobility, but would represent the higher or the upper class of the non-nobility. And they would sometimes be elected to positions in a government and... Local towns would be run, this is before formal democracy was adopted by much of the West, local towns would be run by this upper class of non-nobility, burghers. But everything gets reversed at the last minute because of an event in a completely different country. Now, if we go over to England, while all this is going on, they have just beheaded their king. After that, the beheaded king's heirs escape to the Netherlands to seek refuge. And now the battle lines are starting to be drawn for the First Anglo-Dutch War. And with the coming war, the Amsterdam Chamber of the Dutch West India Company decided rightly that although a democratically elected burger government sounds great on paper, if we're in a wartime situation, we're going to need Peter Stuyvesant in charge. So everything's reversed, and Peter Stuyvesant remains Director General of New Netherland. Now, up to this point, he's been the director for several years, and the English population generally likes him, and he generally likes them, because he is so disliked by the Dutch. The fact that the English settlements tended to like him up to this point 
was a good thing. Now, why would the English like him? First of all, like Keeft and former directors, he invited in these English refugees. They're essentially refugees from New England. So in these different New England colonies at the time, of which there's quite a few, the, the Puritanism that they followed was very intolerant. Okay, we're talking witch hunts, things that never happened in New Netherland. And if you believed one degree different than what a Puritan colony believed, you were kicked out. And people tended to either go back to England or they went to Rhode Island, known as the sewer of New England by the other New Englanders for taking refugees, or New Netherland. We learned about one of these refugees in our episode on Keefe's War and Hutchinson and her followers who were all slaughtered during that completely unnecessary war. So the English in the colony, they liked Stuyvesant for letting them in. They also liked him because if you had a democratically elected government, you still have a Dutch majority. Now, if you're a minority in a democracy, whether it be an ethnic minority or a spiritual minority or a minority of any other sort, in a democracy, you lose. That's how that works. We think a democracy is this perfect government structure. But think about it. If you're the ideological, ideological minority, you're always going to lose the vote, or at least in a perfect democratic system. You'll always lose the vote. So they like Peter Stuyvesant because he's the strong man who happens to like this minority group, and they are of that minority group. So as long as he's in charge, they don't have to deal with the majority. But now the Dutch and the English are on the cusp of war with one another. Stuyvesant starts to change his views on the English. Let's say you are a refugee from Massachusetts and you're settled along Long Island in what's technically inside of the Dutch territory. Well, remember, they're outnumbered perhaps 60 to 1, English for Dutch. Let's say the English roll in with a huge army and you're yourself an English person in Dutch territory. W would you defend the Dutch claim? Or would you go, hey, guys, I've been waiting for you here. I got here way before you. Yeah, I'm on your side. Come on in. I'll join you. Of course you would. Of course you would join your English comrades with those numbers anyway. So before any formal war was declared, and just as the dominoes are starting to fall into place, Stuyvesant reaches out to the New England governors, and he says, I want to meet, and let's make a formal border between your colonies and our colonies. If you remember... New Netherland claimed everything to Cape Cod at certain times, whereas New England claimed everything from the coast of New England down to the Virginias. So the English believed that the Virginia colony and New England actually met. So they disavowed any claim that New Sweden had or New Netherland had to that land. So there was never a clear official border that both agreed on. Stuyvesant said, I'm going to get that border. And Stuyvesant, a good negotiator, before they had a meeting, he sent letters to Governor Winthrop of Massachusetts, whom he had a general warm relationship with. And he says to him, listen, New Netherlands is everything from the Delaware River to the Connecticut River, which, of course, by this time, the Connecticut River is overrun by the English. We're talking about in the vicinity of New Haven, what's going to be the Connecticut colony and what's going to be uh, Saybrook, which all gets consolidated into Connecticut at a certain point. Winthrop sends a reply back basically saying, well, that's not true, and that's not really accurate to the political situation of what's going on right now. And so Stuyvesant shoots back at him and says, you know what? We claim everything to Cape Cod. So he establishes before they even meet, if you give me any sort of resistance, I'm just going to go the other way. I'm not to be trifled with. And to reinforce his point, he sends some ships down to New Haven, and they actually commandeer an English ship. They bring it back to New Amsterdam. He says this ship is in Dutch territory. 
They have no license to be here, no permission to be here. We're taking this ship. And what he does is that he brings the New England colonies to the table. He makes, the, he makes New Netherland enough of a problem that New England now feels compelled to establish where this border is. Very smart man. Considering at this time, New Netherland may have increased to a population of 2,000 people. So it doubled in size between 1647 and 1650, but it's still next to nothing compared to the size of New England. Again, somewhere in the vicinity of 60,000 people. Stuyvesant meets with the commissioners of the United Colonies. This will be the subject of another season. So the New England colonies were organized into a confederation. It's sometimes called the New England Confederation or the United Colonies of New England. He meets with the commissioners, and they come out with this deal called the 1650 Treaty of Hartford. And this establishes for the first time the legal boundary that the Netherlands and England will recognize between New Netherland and New England. Now, a lot of this boundary that was established is going to be, be, it's going to be the boundary between New York and New England today. The one, the one exception that I can think of is that Long Island was cut in half. So the eastern half is going to be in English possession, the western half in Dutch possession, whereas now it's all part of New York. And a lot of the Dutch public did not like this. It looked like Stuyvesant had just given up legally a lot of Dutch land. But the reality is the English were already in these areas, and all Stuyvesant did was get the English to agree to a line, a legal line that would be recognized by both powers of what is owned by the Dutch and what is owned by the English. So Stuyvesant made it look like a loss for the Dutch, but in reality, it was a win for the legal existence of New Netherland. Now, in this very short period of time before the First Anglo-Dutch War, which everybody knew was coming, Stuyvesant established a border with the English. Now, on the South River, remember, he establishes Fort Casimir, and he has reduced New Sweden on the Delaware to having to pay tolls to go up and down the river. So he's starting to subjugate New Sweden. Now let's go to the north of New Netherland, to the area that is now the capital region of New York State, Albany, Schenectady, Troy, which is what we would call it today. At that time, a huge chunk of it, most of it for that matter, was owned by Killian Van Rensselaer. We've talked about this guy before. He had what was called a patroon ship, essentially a fiefdom, a medieval fiefdom in what is now upstate New York. It was a massive chunk of the northern part of the colony, and there wasn't a clear hierarchy of who's in charge of what. Now, Van Rensselaer has been dead for a couple years now, but his heirs are in charge, and they would love to set themselves up as little princes in upstate New York. Remember, the Van Rensselaer family has done these kind of power moves before, including times where they put minor members of their family in charge of the whole colony. But things are going to change. Peter Stuyvesant needs to have complete rule over this colony, especially if the English come warring in his direction. Now, Rensselaerwick and the company had a competing land claim to some territory. So if you remember Fort Orange, before the company gave up their monopoly on the fur trade, Fort Orange was a major trading hub. The Haudenosaunee, especially the Mohawk, would bring their furs to Fort Orange, and that's where they would be traded for company goods. And that's how the company would get a huge chunk of their furs. It was a major trading hub. Now, the, all the land around that, at the same time, was purchased by Killian Van Rensselaer to be his patroonship. So you have this compete, competing land claim between the company and Van, Ren Van Rensselaer essentially over the area around Fort Orange. Because, of course, around Fort Orange, people started to build little settlements. Now, would those people be subject to Van Rensselaer's rule or the company's rule? Well, it seems at this time, it's kind of both. 
Peter Stuyvesant is going to put that matter to rest. Before showing up at Fort Orange, he has his workers there construct a brand new gallows. Essentially, he's saying, I'm going to come lay down the law and you guys better listen. I got this brand new toy I'm willing to use. Legend has it Stuyvesant shot off a cannon at Fort Orange. And that cannonball landed 600 paces away. And he said, everything within cannon shot is not part of Rensselaerwick. This is going to be a new town. We're calling it Beverwick, basically Beaver Town. So everything within 600 paces in a circle around Fort Orange became legally Beaver Town, Beverwick, which would be the future Albany, New York, capital of New York State. This would cause many of the residents of Rensselaerwick, who were basically reduced to a serf-like position underneath the ruler Van Rensselaer, to move to Beverwick. It was a better living situation. And the employees of Van Ren knew this was going to happen. One uh, named Van Schlechtenhorst, who I'm sure we've mentioned before, because it's a very familiar name to me. He, he actually gets arrested. So Stuyvesant says, I'm, d- I'm done listening to you. This is ridiculous. I'm in charge of this colony. I don't care what your boss back in the Netherlands, who's never been here before, says. You're under arrest just because you're bothering me. And in hindsight, it's a good thing he laid down the law and at least took a little bit of Rensselaerwick away from its owners because they're going to maintain the Rensselaer Manor all the way up until, I believe, the 1830s around there. I don't have the exact date written down here. And it's not going to be the best thing for the people living in those areas. So that might be the subject of a very future episode. But it's good that some portion of the capital district of New York State was taken away from the Van Rensselaer Manor, or Patroonship. But now the First Anglo-Dutch War has begun. Now the individual colonies have not yet been called upon to join into the war effort. Remember, although New England is owned by Old England, and New Netherland is owned by Old Netherland, they're very far away from the center of the action and are often forgotten about. We forget about that in American history. You always think, oh, the whole, they found the new world and everybody was learning about it and it was this amazing place that everyone was paying attention. No, no. Europe at this time, they're not thinking too much about this part of North America. And so maybe the entire war will pass without the colonies being dragged in, but maybe not. Stuyvesant wasn't going to wait to find out the answer to that question. Lucky for Stuyvesant, his nemesis on the Delaware, Johann Prince, who we covered in the last episode, packed it in and decided to go back to Sweden. So this would allow Stuyvesant to forget about the Delaware for a little bit and really get a laser eye focus on what the English are going to do or what they they are about to do. Stuyvesant manages to capture some pirates off the coast of Long Island and he finds out through interrogating them they're not pirates after all, they're privateers. They've been hired by the English to pillage the coastlines of Long Island and to take ships along the coastline of Long Island. So he raises up as much as he can men-at-arms, and he gets as many as one-third of the men in the colony to agree to be basically Minutemen, a a homemade militia to defend the colony. Now again, they're greatly outnumbered. One-third of the men-in-arms won't be enough to save New Netherland if the English really come in force. Stuyvesant knew that the United Colonies of New England, the New England Confederation, wasn't truly united. Massachusetts with whom he had very good relations with the leaders of, would always be a little more hesitant than the other colonies to go to war. Of course, New Haven and Connecticut were licking their chops, wanting to take over New Netherland. 
They were right next door, and they wanted to extend their borders all the way to the Hudson River and beyond. So they were ready for war. Massachusetts a little more weary. Nevertheless, walls were reinforced and new walls were built. In fact, Wall Street in New York City today, that is going to be named after a wall that stood around that same area many, many centuries ago, built by Stuyvesant's order. Possibly built with slave labor, which will be the subject of two episodes from now. I'll have a big chunk on slavery. And on the English side, rumors began to be spread that the Dutch governor, Stuyvesant himself, had been in meetings with different Native American tribes and was arranging for them to hit English settlements and pay for their heads. Now, the English greatly feared the Mohawk Indians in particular. And so this just raged across the colonies, and it made it even to Stuyvesant's ear. Stuyvesant this, said this is ridiculous. And in fact, the governors of the New England colonies, they requested an audience with Stuyvesant to see if this rumor was true. Were you intending to pay Native Americans to kill English people? Stuyvesant said, you don't have to come here. I'll go to Boston myself, into the lion's den, and testify to the fact that I did no such thing. New England then sends representatives to New Netherlands to speak with Stuyvesant and others to interview people, to go about the colony and see if anyone has heard about this, and to interview Native American tribes, individuals in those tribes. They want to find the truth of this rumor. They stayed in New Amsterdam not very long, even though Stuyvesant rolled out the red carpet for them. And then they made their way back through Long Island. And they also visited the English settlements within Dutch control. While they were doing this, Stuyvesant found out that one of the English citizens on the island, a man named John Underhill, who you might know from our last New Netherland episode, basically offered to lead a revolt of his settlement from the Dutch side to the English side. John Underhill, a real piece of work right up until the end, would be banished from the colony and forced out back into New England. To Stuyvesant's credit, these agents could find no one to testify to the fact that Stuyvesant was soliciting Native Americans to kill English colonists. It never happened. They did find one Native American who claimed that Stuyvesant was fishing for basically support. If the English invaded, where would you be? Which side would you fall on? And that's all they could really find on Stuyvesant, and there's nothing wrong with that. That is a defensive act. The whole rumor seems to be part of a false flag operation of sorts, so that's, that's where you make up an incident in order to incite a war. You say, side B did something to side A, so let's go to war with them, when in reality it didn't happen at all. You're just making it so uh, the war that you caused looks like they caused it. I could think of many more recent examples, but I don't want to get terribly political. Look back at the causes of the Spanish-American War, 1898, and that'll give you an idea of what we're talking about with a false flag operation. To add to this theory of mine, there was a pamphlet being distributed in England and in New England, and it made its way into New Netherland. This is how Stuyvesant found out about it. It was called The Amboyna Tragedy, or a faithful account of a bloody, treacherous, and cruel plot of the Dutch in America. And it outlined events that happened much earlier in time and on the other side of the world where the Dutch tortured a few English colonists in what I believe is Indonesia today. I could be wrong about that. But again, it was this pamphlet that had nothing to do with anything happening, happening currently, but it was meant to stir up this fever to get back at the Dutch. Clearly, there was a large element of New England licking their chops to take over this colony. But even with these rumors dispelled, the English themselves, back in merry old England, were sending letters to New England. They were preparing 
for an invasion of New Netherland. Oliver Cromwell authorized a military takeover of the colony. And he said, and I quote, the Dutch be either removed or so far at least subjected that the colonies may be free from injurious affronts and secured against the dangers and furnishing them with arms against the English. Convoluted 17th century language. Basically he's saying, we're taking over New Netherland and we're either gonna push out the Dutch or we're gonna subjugate them. Getting these orders, the New England colonies began raising up volunteer armies. Connecticut, New Haven being the first to do so. But even Massachusetts raised up several hundred men to go into war against New Netherland. Everything was heating up. Cromwell, adding fuel to the fire, sends over four armed ships with orders that their commander take control of these militias and have a coordinated invasion of New Netherland. It's 1654, the militias are on the move, the ships are on the move, New Netherland is being closed in on. Stuyvesant knows there could be no resisting this. They can pretend he can, he can bluff as long as he possibly can, but the sheer numbers of New England are going to wipe out New Netherland. This is the end of New Netherland. The story is over. But at the last minute, ships arrive on the ports of North America with news that the first Anglo-Dutch war had ended. Just as the world was falling down around Stuyvesant, it all just reversed. The war was over. There would be no invasion of New Netherland. England and the Netherlands are now at peace. Stuyvesant now turned his eyes to the south, to New Sweden, to the Delaware. The fort he built down there, Fort Casimir, in 1654, the replacement of Johann Prince, a man by the last name of Riesing, took over the fort. Rita Stuyvesant was worried about the English and concentrating all his forces to the northern part of the colony. The Swedes moved in. They took advantage of the distraction and took over the largest Dutch fort on the river. Now, this was a bold move. Before this point, they're playing chess with each other, right? We talked about this in previous episodes. I'll build a fort here. You build a fort there. I'm going to build a fort further upstream. I'm going to build a fort further instream, closer to the fur. I'm going to... I'm going to collect forces so much that I can charge a toll for you to pass by my fort. But the Swedes took it so far under this new commander named Riesing, he actually took over a Dutch fort. Now that is something Stuyvesant couldn't tolerate. That was an act of war. Now, of course, he did so in the middle of the Anglo-Dutch war. However, now we're at a time of peace for England. Not only that, but now Sweden is distracted. It's their turn to uh, go to war. And what's happening right now in Sweden is what's called the Second Northern War. And it looks like the Dutch, rather than being an ally with the Swedes as they usually were, would eventually slide into the position of being an enemy of Sweden. So now Stuyvesant's looking to his south and he realizes, oh, this is bad. You took over my fort, dude. You took this way too far. We were playing chess before and now you have just upped the ante and we're playing poker. Well, now I'm going to call your bluff. Now, now things are going to get heated. He writes a letter back to the Dutch West India Company. Around the same time, he commandeers a Swedish ship that is coming a little too close to New Amsterdam for comfort. He takes it over. He takes all the cargo. And he says to Riesing, hey, if you want to negotiate for this ship of goods, because I know your colony is not getting very many ships coming in. If you want this, you're going to have to come to New Amsterdam and negotiate with me. Riesing, of course, refuses. And he writes another letter off to the Dutch West India Company. And he just waits for the reply. And I'm betting Stuyvesant knew what was going to happen next. 
Here is the response that Stuyvesant received from the Amsterdam Chamber of the Dutch West India Company on the taking of Fort Casimir, which was surrendered without a shot. We hardly know whether we are more astonished at the audacious enterprise of the Swedes in taking our fort on the South River or the cowardly surrender of it by our commander, which is nearly insufferable. He acted very unfaithfully, yea, treacherously. We entreat you to exert every nerve to avenge that injury, not only by restoring affairs to their former situation, but by driving the Swedes from every side of the river. We have put in commission two armed ships, the King Solomon and the Great Christopher. The drum is beaten daily in the streets of Amsterdam for volunteers, and orders are given for the instant arrest of the commander of the fort. Stuyvesant must have been elated by current events. Not only was the Anglo-Dutch war over, and he wouldn't have to worry about a war where his men might be outnumbered 30 to 1. Now it's not the English, but Stuyvesant and the Dutch who are licking their chops, looking at the Delaware. Now they have permission to take over New Sweden, where they will have the larger army, possibly outnumbering the Swedes 10 to 1. In the next episode of the Other States of America History Podcast, Stuyvesant tries to invade New Sweden. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts.